It's Alum Group's Andrea Lay, Packview's Melissa Burdick, special guest Jackie Donowski from Flywheel, and I'm PVSB, also from Flywheel. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 13th, and it's time for the Fresh Four. Four curated news stories from the past week. We find them polyhistorically intriguing. We hope you do too. They're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence and news. Retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Jackie, kick us off, would you? Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect to bring closed-loop attribution to streaming advertisers. Well, hello there, Fresh Boy listeners. Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect have solidified an agreement to bring the retailer's industry-leading audience solutions and measurement to Disney's addressable streaming inventory. The collaboration will enable enhanced audience targeting and outcome-based measurements for brand campaigns across Disney's streaming portfolio, including Hulu and Disney+. Connecting Walmart's customer insights with Disney's proprietary audience graph will help advertisers reach their desired audiences and measure the impact of their campaigns through closed-loop attribution. Thanks, Jackie. Andrea, over to you. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. NBC Universal and Instacart link up to bring retail media opportunities to TV. NBC Universal and Instacart are expanding their existing partnership to include a new retail media workstream that will enable Instacart's CPG advertisers to connect with consumers via NBC Universal's streaming and linear television content. In late 2023, the companies teamed up to include access to NBC Universal's streaming platform Peacock as part of the Instacart Plus membership package. Now, with this new first-party data collaboration, advertisers will be able to reach consumers through NBC Universal's content and measure the impact of their campaigns by leveraging ad exposure and purchase data from Instacart. Thank you, Andrea. Melissa, what do you have for us? Amazon has announced a new country that they're opening up. Amazon has announced that it will launch a new dedicated website for Ireland in 2025. Currently, most Irish customers use Amazon sites based in the UK or other European countries. The company said the Irish site will mean that users will be able to avoid additional customs charges and currency conversion fees, and it will also lead to faster delivery and returns for many items. All right, over to you, Peter. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Rajkapalan, Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg, explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG Guys. Hello, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast. I'm Brian Gildenberg, the founder and CEO of Confluencer Commerce, the managing director of North America at Retail Cities, and the host of both the Gildenberg Omni Comment, LinkedIn video series, and the CPG Guys Fast Forward podcast available to you on any podcasting platform you're interested in. Today, uh, we've got a very special guest with some very exciting news. Uh, but before we get to that, I'm going to remind everyone to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if you use Apple or Spotify, please, please, please give us a rating, uh, particularly if it's a good rating. It helps feed the algorithm, as they say, and also makes our podcast more findable. And in an era of cookie degradation, 
user engagement and visibility is going to be a key. And where I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, as we get into the conversation today. We do want to express how honored we are to be rated the number one CPG podcast for two years running, according to Feedspot, the leading podcast ranking authority. And we are pleased to have join us in the top 30, our sister podcasts, uh, My Fast Forward podcast, the CPG Scoop with Jen Silverberg and Reza Crandall, and the FMCG guys over in Europe with Efrem uh, Rosario and Daniel Torres Dwyer, who have just crossed the 10,000 follower threshold on LinkedIn. So if you really do want to get an understanding as to what's happening across the pond, as we say, uh, the FMCG guys is a fantastic place to do that. Uh, we're also happy to be formal sponsors of Next Up, whose mission it is to advance all women in business and promote the cause of gender equality in the workplace. To learn more about Next Up, simply click on the hyperlink in the digital liner notes of this episode, where you'll also find links to our podcast site and the sites of our sister podcast. You'll also find links to our good friend and fellow CPG guy, Shri, his daughter's uh, careers, Ray and Lara, as they uh, embark on their musical careers. You'll find links to their latest content as well. So after all of that preamble and all of that excitement, I have no one here to talk baseball with, which is good, because for those of you that can see the video preview behind me, you can see that uh, I am a Boston Red Sox fan, and the less we say about the Boston Red Sox right now, the better off we're going to be. So uh, I'm also joined today, however, by fellow Red Sox enthusiasts and uh, data identity expert and evangelist, the VP of Industry Sales for Retail and CPG at LiveRamp, Kevin Dunn. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Brian. Thank you. And yes, avid Red Sox fan, although I put Patriots, Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins in my order of Boston team obnoxious fandom. Interesting. I'm only a Patriots and a Red Sox fan, weirdly. Yes, because I didn't grow up in Boston, but I, I grew up in New York hating the Yankees. And then for a variety of complicated reasons, became a Patriots fan after moving back to the United States from England. So as I, uh, I lost touch with American sports when I lived over there and came back and discovered Rich Kotite was coaching the Eagles. And I said, well, if you're not going to take this seriously, neither am I. So uh, and we, my, I, I lived in Boston at the time. So anyway, well, all good stuff. And uh, hopefully this conversation is more successful than the Red Sox offseason. <laughs> Although you're going to talk about it. You actually made an acquisition, unlike the Red Sox. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But before we get started, Kevin, I think a number of people in our ecosystem um, know LiveRamp or know the name or have say, oh, yeah, LiveRamp, they do something that's quite important and lots of people use them. But just spend a little bit of time uh, just to walk through a little bit around LiveRamp and uh, what your role is there. That'd be a good kickoff today, I think. Certainly. Yeah, I've been at LiveRamp for... Uh, about eight years now, and to your point, currently running the global retail and CPG team. And so I've seen sort of LiveRamp's progression, right? And at the very beginning, LiveRamp solved, you know, a very complex problem with a very simple solution. And people in the industry might remember that as onboarding, right? Taking first-party data, turning it to a digital identifier, and sending it across the ecosystem. Uh, and over time, we evolved into what we call an identity company. So helping brands, platforms, data providers build sort of an identity construct. Uh, and recently, LiveRamp has sort of evolved again, right, to what we see as the world's leading data collaboration platform, where we can talk about what, what we mean about data collaboration. But I think the power of LiveRamp over the years is to evolve in the new ways that brands, platforms, and advertisers want to share data, understand data, uh, and building both that sharing capability and the identity capability to, to realize, you know, 
there's a different Kevin in all of these different uh, universes. And how do you tie those Kevins together? Well, that's good. So I, th- I like the idea of the metaverse. Like you guys are, uh, you guys have really embraced the Marvel ecosystem. So, <laughs> so uh, we're going to, we're going to come back to that idea a couple of times. In fact, it's interesting conversations with people about, you know, how all kidding aside, the ability to understand identity is a uh, identity is a fluid concept, as anybody with teenagers knows, as my kids have gone through a variety of them at this point. Um, so, but I think in general, that ability to basically connect disparate parts of personally identified data into one sort of single identity, which is really a core, I think, of what LiveRamp does, is also going to be the core of how all of this quest to hyper-personalization and all the other things that people love to talk about when they get hammered at marketing conferences and go on stage. Um, all that stuff has to be enabled somehow. It's not magic. It's work. Um, it's work that hasn't changed by like when I was a marketing geek at 22, getting drunk at those conferences. And, you know, you were talking about uh, marketing databases and marketing service providers. You know, when I was at a company called Unica, we were talking about the same thing. How do yeah. you take an enterprise's first party data, connect it all together, create a single view of a customer, segment that data, uh, and sort of distribute it across the channels. I think what's happened over the evolution of MarTech, AdTech, AdTech, whatever you want to call it, is the type of data has changed and the channels have sort of changed. But but the concept of having a single view of your customer and being able to measure that activation of that single view has been something we've been talking about in MyTech and AdTech for 20 years, right? It's it's still sort of this evolution of how do we do it better? How do we do it faster? How do we do it more efficient? But also the, the way that we identify customers is constantly changing, right? We move from emails to cookies to, you know, kind of back to email, right? And so it's just this constant evolution of, of how do you identify a customer? How do you find that customer in this metaverse, this Marvel ecosystem, and then how do you measure your ability to find that customer? Um, so the concepts haven't changed. The tools have changed. Well, yeah. And especially, I mean, if you go back to the uh, the old historical origin story of, uh, you know, of Live Ramp, which is the old Axiom business, I mean, that all comes out of the mailing lists and phone books industry. So, uh, so many of these companies that power this data ecosystem today are companies that have just deeply rooted legacy businesses doing things that have been around for a million years, whether it's whether it's Experian with credit cards or whether, I mean, when I worked at WPP, Wonderman became like the center of our enterprise model. And basically that was, again, it was basically a magazine subscription business. It was a CRM business. Yeah. Um, so, and, it, and it's been interesting to watch all of these types of businesses sort of then adapt themselves to this digital world and find out that they were sitting on an enormous collection of data and an enormous collection of capabilities that are now incredibly important to the modern world. But yeah, I always think it's funny when people think that they've invented some of this stuff to find out that the infrastructure to do all this work usually predates that person being born. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so as they look at Especially it. Especially people as young as us, Brian, you know, when you're as young as us, when you're as young as us too, that's, that's, that's often true. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate the us in that, but I think you're using the term <laughs> us fairly loosely there. So, um, I'm not the oldest CPG guy. I leave it to anybody to guess who is, but I'm not, fortunately, blessedly. Um, so, um, shots fine, which is good. So, as long as I can do that, I'm feeling good. Um, yeah. So, anyway, in the digital liner notes of this episode, we're going to include links to your LinkedIn profile, Live Ramps LinkedIn page, uh, and your corporate website for listeners to access uh, if they want to do a deeper dive. But we will then go on with our conversation. And the the other thing I want to kick off with is that uh, you know by the time this podcast airs, which will be next week in the real world, uh, this news won't be as 
hot off the presses as it is now. But uh, talk a little bit about some of the ways LiveRamp was making news yesterday. I think we're going to come back to the content around that a little bit more, a little bit later in the conversation. But Sure. It won't be hot off the presses, but I think just as exciting and sort of transformational in my mind. And yesterday, LiveRamp announced that we will be acquiring Habu, uh, which for those who don't know, Habu is a data collaboration platform. And for those who do know Habu and LiveRamp, right, we both sort of had a data collaboration platform in market. And we see this sort of as a marriage of two titans uh, in the space. And sort of goes back to that evolution of live web that I was talking about earlier, right? From an onboarding company to an identity company to a company that envisions the ability to power collaboration across anywhere where data is living, any cloud, any sort of platform. Uh, you know, and as things like cookies and other identities deprecate in the ecosystem, the power of first party data is back and more powerful than ever. And data collaboration, we see, is the tool that's going to allow that first-party data to be even more valuable than it is today by allowing brands, advertisers, and platforms to merge those data sets together to create powerful use cases and keep this ecosystem of digital advertising and digital marketing uh, into the future. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating because I think so often, especially on the brand side, I mean, we'll talk about the retailers a little bit there. The retailers, I think, are solving a different problem here. But on the brand side, so often their first-party data collection efforts are, you know, they're fascinating and they're adorable. But, you know, often they don't have a first-party data ecosystem that has hundreds of millions of people in it. But the ability to use clean rooms to match your first-party data to other first-party data assets to accomplish specific things becomes super powerful in a hurry. So. Yeah, and you're seeing the rise of it already, particularly with, with Google, you know, taking another 1% of the cookie ecosystem off the table, right? More of the ecosystem is now non-cookie than cookie, right? And right. so brands are starting to see their reach, like, really uh, not be there anymore for that cookie landscape. And so, you know, their ability to query, understand, merge, and leverage first-party data sets when they, to your point, haven't traditionally had a direct-to-consumer strategy of collecting first-party data is more important than ever. And that's what you see this rise, obviously, of retail media networks based on that, right? And the biggest CPGs in the world want access to that data. And I think it's for a few reasons. One, to sort of really understand and get insights on their consumers. But I also think they want more transparency on their advertising spend, which they traditionally haven't been able to get, right? right. And, and they see this opportunity with the access of the retailer data to get that. Yeah, when I think, and we'll, co we'll, we'll come back to the cookie degradation and what it means for the retail ecosystem in it too. But before we do, I just want to give you a chance to kind of just share a little bit about your journey to data identity guru. How did, uh, is this what you dreamed of doing on the playground as a small child when you were uh, imitating Carl Yastrzemski or whatever it was? Uh, well, I actually dreamed of being a cook. So like people say- Oh, well, there you go. So, so no. No, so no. And people say I look like the bear. Uh, one yes. of my, my favorite shows. I don't think I have the body of the bear. That show is the best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've been in the space for 20 some odd years um, and really came into the identity space at my time at IBM. Uh, I was at a company called Unica and we started purchasing companies like Silverpop for email and CoreMetrics for web analytics, putting together you know what we thought was a full encompassing marketing cloud but really based on own channels. Uh, and at the time, there was the rise of this company in programmatic that some of us might know called MediaMath. Uh, and many of our clients were leveraging 
MediaMath and asking us to send email audiences to MediaMath. And everyone on this phone call or listening to this podcast knows immediately the problem we ran into, right? Our clients couldn't get the same scale of the match rate sending just hashed emails directly to MediaMath, which was a cookie-based uh, application. And that's when I ran into this company called LiveWeb. And, you know, as they sort of unveiled to me their dream uh, and their vision of onboarding, I really saw the future of digital advertising and digital measurement around this concept of identity. And so then I joined LiveRep and spent most of my time at LiveRep helping our largest technology platforms build their own identity structure. So think the Trade Desk and obviously MediaMath and Yahoo and Xander and Facebook and Snapchat and Google, all these companies who are using LiveRep as an identity core to their larger identity strategies and planting identity into the ecosystem. And that's why I moved over to retail CPG, because if you look at what's happening in retail CPG, they're all building media platforms, ad tech platforms, and really becoming the new publisher. And that's what we and myself at Live really know how to bring value and how could we bring that same value to the retailers. Okay, so let's pause there for a second and take a deep breath, because for anybody that isn't in the identity world, they've... Uh... <laughs> like, what is this crazy talking about? We're going to go back and we're going to tackle two big chunks of that in a little bit more detail. Sure. Um, so one of which, and you alluded to this earlier, and it's going to be an important setup for the rest of our conversation, which is when you were talking about media math and how it was cookie based and then the match rates weren't as high. I think most people could probably intuit from that conversation that match rates are the percentage of people in one audience set that are also in another. Right. So right. that's the match rate. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't have a large enough sample on either side, you very quickly get to a situation where your match rates get too low to do anything really meaningful out of it. So. Now, if I'm bringing 100 people to the party and the other person's bringing 100, we get 10 people that match. That's not really going to help anybody, right? The party's not as good. Yeah. Yeah. So size of the origin audience is an important part of this, as well as the ability to actually then match that person to somebody else. Those are sort of the two critical enablers. So it's like, I've got to be big or I've got to be good at matching. Preferably, we're both. The other thing that you mentioned that you alluded to in there was that LiveRamp had a different answer. Uh, rather than the cookie-based model that MediaMath was using. Can you talk a little bit about what that answer is? Because that then will also help set up sort of the next question as well. Yeah. So LiveUp had done two very interesting things. One, they had collected a bunch of offline data. So email addresses, name and postals, all sort of publicly available and collected it into this massive database. And part of the reason Axiom was acquiring LiveWeb is they had assets in the offline space to enhance that. So they basically created the largest offline reference file in the world, uh, over 380 million U.S. consumers that had all this interesting offline information about consumers. They'd also partnered with the world's largest publishers to create what they called the match network. So matching uh, authenticated emails. So when people log in to say ESPN.com, they provide their email address, match it to a cookie. And so LiveRamp was able to match all those cookie identities with email identities and then had gone out and created interesting partnerships with Facebook and you know, Instagram and others to build sort of this almost Rosetta Stone of different types of identity. And so when you wanted to send email addresses to someone like MediaMath, they had built that mapping so that they could say, hey, this MediaMath cookie 
equals your email address. And so right. now we can find Kevin's email in the media math ecosystem. Right. And then that becomes, I think, the other important thing, because I think often, and I, I was probably guilty of this when I started learning this ecosystem as well, that um, there's this idea that there's going to be sort of one identity to rule them all, one identity to find them, right? Like the one ring in the Lord of the Rings, right? But you talked in your opening comments about the work that you've done with the trade desk and meta to help them establish their own identity solution. Can you just go through that with a couple more sentences attached to what that actually means? And then what's the role that LiveRamp plays in that? Yeah, totally. No one ring to rule it all, right? Photo threw it into Mordor and then that ring's melted. There we go. <laughs> next, yeah, next week on Nerd Talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you think about live ramps, one of our core value propositions is this people-based identity concept, meaning that we don't match an identity in our world unless we're 100% sure, uh, close enough to 100% that exists, that these identifiers equal Kevin's information. And we call that a deterministic match, right? So 100% deterministic. Many identity graphs in the world focus on reach, right? We, well, we focus on accuracy. And so if I'm building a probabilistic or reach-oriented graph, I want to build a foundation of deterministic matches on the bottom of that graph to understand that here's the core audience of people that I have in my ecosystem. And now I want to expand that to all the other probabilities of people that might be interested in. Yeah, early in my data journey, at Kantar, we were involved in a business called Shopcom that did some of this work, right? I remember the Shopcom team explaining to me that we had 150 million American households in our database. I'm like, that's awesome. There aren't 150 million American households, but cool. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we think there are. Um, so it's like that, that at some basic level does not seem accurate to me. <laughs> yeah. hey, when you're collecting all that data, right? Like you and me might have logged into something with a similar email and uh, it, it might seem like we're in the same household. But what if I moved? into that apartment after you, right? And so- We'll move out, Kevin. Who's going who's gonna to water the plant? <laughs> we'll just stay with you, but we'll watch uh, The Hobbit together. But I think that's part of- Hobbit sucks, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's part of what happens, right? Is like, you know, the consumer's interaction with brands is constantly changing. The consumer's information is constantly changing. And so you see this all the time with first-party databases, right? Multiple Kevins in there. Uh, and, and it's hard for brands, I think, often and retailers and anyone with first party data to discern is that the same Kevin? Is that different Kevin's? Is this Kevin with two addresses just mean Kevin moved? Or is that the same Kevin? But the, you know, so so that's part of what things like LiveRamp and identity graphs allow you to do is because they have a reference database that they're constantly updating. It takes the onus off the brand to do that. The brand or the retailer or the collector of that first party data can collect the data and use an identity structure to confirm like, yes, this is the Kevin we think it is. And to your point, they actually belong to the same household as Brian or any other person that they might be living with so that you can understand effectiveness of marketing. You don't want to target the same household and necessarily different products unless that makes sense. Right. And then that gets to, I think, one of the foundational things that I know you all try to communicate to the marketplace and that you think is important, which is this difference between being an identity solution and being a connectivity solution, right? Um, so I know that you've worked with individual entities to have their own identities, right? And 
you wouldn't have thought that live ramp would be in the business of saying it's really important you have your own identity, right? Like there are so many providers of this type of service out there that are trying to get everybody to move to their one solution. But your idea is that the biggest work a company can do is to get their own identity house in order before you come to the party where you're trying to match to everybody else. Is that a fair understanding of how you think about this? It's spot on, Brian, right? Like particularly with the the way that first party data is so valuable to people who own first party data, it's very important that they have an identity structure on top of that first party data, right? Like Target's going to have a different sort of thought and understanding of Kevin than Target or P&G, or uh, Facebook, right? And there's never going to be one identity that has what I call all the edges and nodes of Kevin's personality in it, right? It's just not possible, right? And so... It's, you contain multitudes, Kevin. Yes, that's true. I, I came, I, there's too much complexity in Kevin. <laughs> uh, but th- So there's two concepts that I think we see the market needing to adopt. One is identity. So everyone who has first party data should have a framework, rules, and ways that they consolidate that data, that they understand the who's who within that data, that they add augmentative data to that, like second and third party data, so that they can, you know, like we were talking about 20 years ago, consolidate all the different sources of data across their ecosystem, point of sale, website, in-store data. And with the deprecation of particularly cookies, they want that identity structure to be addressable and measurable across the ecosystem. That's where connectivity comes in. And so many times you hear people talk about Ramp ID, for instance, as an identity. Ramp ID is more a connectivity between your identity and someone else's identity. So say I'm Target and I want to translate my identity to my DSP or my SSP, or my walled gardens identity. That's where Vamp ID comes in, is it gives you the ability to translate your understanding of Kevin to someone else's understanding of Kevin. Right. Yeah, well, and I think, so one thing that I'm deriving from this conversation is, is that if I were giving advice to someone who's trying to get their organization to move down a pathway of higher capability to deliver hyper-personalization or personalized targeting or whatever it is, that one of the fundamental questions you want to be asking as a leader of your marketing and data teams is, okay, what is our identity strategy? What's our identity resolution strategy? You know, are we getting to a point where before we get all excited about what Amazon Marketing Cloud can do or what a clean room can do or whatever it is, we, you know, what do we bring into the party, right? You know, it's basically like I like, I know this is going to be a fun party, but if you're not dressed well for it, you're not going to have as good a time, right? So, you know, do we have the right clothes on? Do we buy a bottle of wine? Are we, are we actually ready to go to the party, right? So what's, what's the preparation process look like? Totally. And is it many people going to be at the party, right? I think if I was in the shoes of the people you just talked about, I want to know, is my audience size going to continue to be the same or grow? with the deprecation of third-party cookies. Because if you think about what a lot of brands would do is they'd have this core first-party data set and the audience, to your point at the beginning of, of our conversation, might not be big enough to drive the needle. And so they'd expand that audience size with third-party data. That future is not as bright as it used to be, right? And so right. the way that those audience sizes are going to grow is by each of these owners of first-party data having their own identity structure so that in a privacy safe way, they can start working with other first party data sets 
to expand that audience size, right? Expand the party. And, and second party data, like we were talking about before, is not a new concept. Concept that we've been talking about in this space for a very long time. But there hasn't been the tooling and the technology that have made two owners of first party data comfortable with sharing that data together. That's where things like clean rooms and identity frameworks come into place because they allow two first parties to share data with the rules that they put in place around sharing that data with synonymous security capabilities on top of it, right? Now we're going to take a deep breath for everybody here. So uh, just as a... Uh, as a as Get me excited, Ryan. You got me going. I, I know. And then we yeah, we got the, <laughs> we got the pseudonymous, which is my second favorite Genesis album. And then we're going to have to throw that one. So. All right. So uh, just a reminder to the audience, uh, we're having a conversation here with Kevin Dunn, the Vice President of Industry Sales for uh, Retail and CPG at LiveRamp. So now we've gotten to a point where if I'm a brand or a retailer today, I've started to solve my own identity issues to the point where as much of my data as I have that has personalizable is unified enough that I can bring it to a party and amplify it appropriately. And there's an interesting question to come back to around, look, in the end, it seems that 97% of what was happening from a cookie marketing program was you know, retargeting, which was a curious exercise sometimes, you know, sometimes useful, sometimes it served the same purpose as retargeting, you know, it was retargeting in combat, right? Like, it's like we blew up the munitions depot, by all means, let's blow it up again. So that that works or no, it doesn't. So we're going to come back to some of the applications in a minute, but let's just sort of take a pause. And then um, as you started to get into the idea of then how the data matching process takes place, you mentioned a concept called second-party data. Most people know that second-party data is, but just to help the audience that doesn't, second-party data is, from your mind, what? Two sets of first-party data yeah. merged together to create a new audience. Set. Right. Okay, yeah. So second-party data is your first-party data amplified by somebody else's first-party data. So, and that gets you to a, a different data set than the one you're working on before. And now we start to get into the concept of clean rooms. And that, when we go back to the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about yesterday in podcast time, um, acquired, uh, <laughs> acquired Habu, which is a business that's in the clean room provision business. So now, from a clean room point of view, talk a little bit about how the mechanics of that work from your perspective. What are some of the pros and then what are some of the watchouts of clean room technology? Yeah, I think the pros for sure, uh, you know, when you have first-party data sets distorted in a bunch of different places, Google Cloud, Amazon Cloud, hosted in your own private cloud. And so clean rooms provide this technology layer between where your first-party data is stored and where your partner's first-party data is stored and give you ability to query or view that data. So the data isn't actually, quote-unquote, merge, right? You're querying and, and viewing that data and your partner's permissioning and what, what I mean by permissioning is they're setting rules like can see that this is Kevin or can see that these attributes are about Kevin or are only going to allow them to see these type of segments or whatever the sort of rules is that you want to set. And then, you know, as the person on the other side, you, you say, hey, I want to understand from your first party data set, how many Kevins do you have who are interested in buying fantasy novels, right? And then the clean room goes into that other person's first party data set, 
pulls those insights out and allows the querier to see, okay, this first party data set has these many people who are interested in fantasy novels. I also have my first party data over here, and I might know that people who are interested in fantasy novels are also interested in video games. And so and I want to overlap on top of that my understanding of those same people and the attributes I understand about those people. So now I have this new second party data set of people who are Kevin and like Kevin who like fantasy novels and like video games, right? And those are what I mean by expanding audience sizes. In those two first party data sets, one person knew Kevin like fantasy novels and the other person knew Kevin like video games. And the clean room allowed them to safely combine those two interesting pieces of information about Kevin. And now they have a new understanding about Kevin. Right. And I think the important thing is from the clean room, though, is that most of the time what happens is that those data sets come together to accomplish that objective and then they go back to their original owners. So there's no question about who owns the data. There's no question about I need to give away my first party data. There's no the privacy concerns come way down for especially the retailers that are, I think, both for you know, what I would call noble reasons as well as commercial ones hyper vigilant about protecting their shoppers privacy totally. that yeah. has the coincidental effect of you know giving them their own proprietary data sets that no one else can access but yes we're also concerned about privacy so is google i guess um you know as you look at what they're trying to do so that's true as well so with all the privacy concerns people don't want that first party data to live in a world where it can constantly get um, co-mingled, I think is the technical term that gets used a lot for that. My stupid, simple metaphor for this has always been the seventh grade dance. So like your first party date are all the boys on one wall, somebody else's or all the girls on the other. They come together for a discrete moment in time and create second party data, i.e. a dance. They are carefully chaperoned. There's no permanent exchange of anything because they'd all get kicked out of school. The music plays. That's the job to be done. And then once it's done, they go back to the wall and they never talk to each other again. So, and that's basically that, that mechanic, I think is an incredibly important one. Amazon marketing cloud is probably the clean room quote unquote today that most people are most familiar with because a lot of Amazon's data capabilities today that allow you to import first party data basically make it what I might suggest is one of the world's larger clean room environments. Is that, you think that's a fair characterization or? Totally. But th there's other clean rooms like Facebook has a clean room, right? To your point, uh, Google has a clean room, right? And, you know, what market it doesn't market in those three ecosystems. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you could think about sort of the next value prop is hey, I'm marketing in these three ecosystems. I want to understand the effectiveness of my marketing across these three ecosystems. And I don't want to be logging into each one of these clean rooms to have that understanding. So imagine a layer on top of those clean rooms where I can now see, oh, it's almost like the clean room on top of the clean rooms, right? There's not going to be one identity to rule them all. There's not going to be one clean room to rule them all. But there still needs to be a way to interoperate across all the different clean rooms and clouds. And that's sort of our vision at LiveRip. And part of the reason for acquiring a company like Habu is now we have this ability to gain insights and provide marketer insights across all of those different clean rooms particularly in the premium publishers, where they're doing and spending marketing dollars. Right. So that your vision is to take your unifying or connecting data capabilities and then through the Habu clean room environment, be able to link together work that's going on in a range of clean rooms to be able to tell a more integrated story across 
you know, basically multiple ecosystems that way. Yeah, it's it's why the marriage of the two companies is so powerful, right? You have yes, you have, you have Habu's clean room technology. You have LiveMap's arguably largest ecosystem in the ad tech universe, and you sort of combine those. And to your point, now you have this interoperability to not only understand across all of the different ecosystems and pioneers, but activate, right? So now in my clean room, I, to your point, we've had this dance, right? Everyone's in the middle of the dance and like, oh, now I really want to reach out to those people who came to the dance and had a good time, right? And right. I can do that directly out of my, my clean room and invite them back to the next dance. Right. Yeah. Or if I've been to multiple dances, I want to be able to re remember everybody I danced with at each one of them. Right. Yeah. So, and, yeah, so. and did they enjoy the dance? Right. I think that's a big part of where marketers and, and anyone sort of activating data in the future ecosystems is going to want to know, like, how did I spend my money? Was my money spent effectively? Uh, and that's been a challenge for a very long time. And look, it's not going to be solved tomorrow. Like, you know, Multi-channel attribution is something we all talk about. It's like this utopia dream I've been talking about since marketing conferences when I was 22, but we're getting very close, right? And clean rooms and a unified identity bring us closer to that dream. Yeah, because basically what you've, I'm not sure whether it's a unified numerator or a unified denominator in the uh, fraction, but the ability to actually at least know at least a common size, a part of the problem gets you to the ability to, to be able to assess a return on some sort of return on spend that's uh, vaguely consistent across different platforms. So that seems to be a, a critical enabler. All right. The, the beauty of your business is you get to partner with a lot of different types of entities, you know, brands, retailers, providers, technology platforms other data matchers. You're a big piece of this. So if if you were going to describe the attributes of a business that I would say is really good at this personalization, data matching, identity, and connectivity ecosystem, what are some of the attributes of what you would consider to be a best-in-class user of this ecosystem? What are they good at? Ooh, a lot of facets that I think we should focus on sort of one type of user. So let's let's focus on a retail marketer just to sort of keep us level set. And I think everyone sort of understands basically what a retail market is trying to accomplish. And so when retail marketers, I think, have the ability to understand and leverage their first party data in a way that's easy and have the ability to create and optimize segments on the fly, very powerful, and who are strategic on the partners that they're going to activate that, that information with, uh, so that they can then uh, drive that effectiveness is very important, but also people who understand that there's unique attributes uh, that drive the most return on investment for people like Kevin. So they leverage all of the data that they have the ability to obtain to make sure that the hyper-personalization that we've been talking about is really hyper-personalized towards Kevin, right? So they, to summarize, I think people who can leverage the first party data easily and simply, who can understand all the different attributes about the people that they're trying to target uh, and can leverage those attributes to define really personalized marketing and then know that the measurement of that is both an art and a science. Right. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about that, the art and the science of measurement for a second, because it's both refreshing and interesting to hear you say that and that a business, you would have thought that or I would have thought, uh, coming in that a business that is so precise around 
identity and connectivity would have argued that precision and measurement is essential and that measurement is all science. But to hear you say that measurement is both an art and a science, what do you what do you kind of mean by that in terms of how how can we think of it? Yeah. Certainly believe in people based specific measurement, right? And yeah. using that data to be as accurate as possible. Right. But there's a bunch of different methodologies that people like to use. First click, last click, mixed modeling. Right. And so what I mean by science is each person who's measuring needs to define what's important to them, what they define as success, because, you know, companies like LiveWeb give you the tools to be very, very accurate, but we don't necessarily solve some of the largest problems like understanding true multi-channel attribution or really understanding uh, how the creative, for example, was effective. And so that's what I mean by science is everyone who's measuring really has to determine what is important for their business, what things are they looking to accomplish, and what parts of this massive amount of data is really important for them to understand how they're driving top or bottom of the funnel, right? And that's what I mean by the science is, is everyone can provide insights, but how you use those insights and what they mean to you is different for every company. Well, I think it's interesting because there's two ideas in there that I think are really critical. The first of which is, is that um, now you're just going to get a couple of philosophies of mine. But I think one of uh, having not grown up in the digital marketing world, you know, I come out of the my origin story in this particular superhero novel is out of the more the analog retail side of things. But also at Kantar, grew up for years uh, helping market and sell our trade promotion, optimization, and effectiveness solutions. And... To hear digital people talk about how that stuff is measured today hurts my feelings because like, ah, stuff is a measure. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, the sales teams will just spend whatever to get. It's like, well, no, actually, that's not really what's happening there. It's not measured to the granularity with which you can measure digital stuff, but that doesn't necessarily make it A, less accurate or B, less important, right? Like right. granular, there's an overriding assumption in the digital world that granularity begets accuracy and that accuracy begets meaning. Those two things are not always true. Totally. So, you know, granularity doesn't get you accuracy. Granularity gets you granularity. If you don't know what it is you're trying to accomplish, you're not going to have an accurate measure of the outcome. And then meaning is just, you know, that's something to your point where, you know, if I don't know what the job is I'm trying to get done, I can have the most accurate measure in the world. So it's not really going to make that much difference. So, um, yeah, the precision and accuracy to your point can tie to different outcomes. If you don't know the outcome that you're trying to drive, then it doesn't really matter how great the data is because you don't know what you're trying to do with it. Yeah. Well, and it, and it always reminds me of a longtime friend of the podcast, Diana Housling from, uh, from Colgate. Like, cause every time I see Diana on stage and she gets asked a question about some specific tool in marketing, like, what do you think the future of retail media is? And how do you think about that? And she's like, we don't think about retail media as a thing. We think about the job we're trying to get done as marketers and then what the right tools are to do the job that needs to get done. Like we don't have a retail media strategy. We have a, how do we create brand awareness strategy? We have a, right, a category growth strategy, right? Or, how do we have a categorizers? How do we have a brand conquesting and share growth strategy? Like how do we have a new item launch strategy? Like all of these things become part of this. And I, I do think it is, I think it's quite possible. I mean, I think it happens all the time where people just lose sight of that as I think there's something in particular about the digital world with the granularity and biddability of each individual event that breeds a very real term sort of, you know, 
call and response type thing that comes out of this. And, you know, the best metaphor I can think of, it's kind of like training a puppy. Like, you know, the puppy will do whatever it gets a treat to do. So you just have to be careful about when the treats are distributed because you will build muscle memory for the puppy that they get a treat for whatever. So um, anybody that's ever had a dog that tries to go out 14 times a day because it gets a treat every time it comes back in, understands the difference between granularity and accuracy. <laughs> um, so um, so it's like the dog's maximizing ROAS. It's just you're not getting anything done. Um, <laughs> As someone in the middle of training a dog, I'm, that analogy is hitting home. There you go. Yes. So, uh, you know, re return on outdoor adventures. Um, <laughs> as a, uh, <laughs> I can't think of the, the acronym right now. All right. So um, last question before we uh, bring this plane sort of closer to the ground, hopefully with all its windows intact. So um, if you had to kind of say, I mean, obviously, y'all are about to go on a bit of a journey as you change the nature of your offer through the Habu acquisition. But uh, if you were thinking about this industry 12 months from now, um, what, if anything, do you think is most different about it as we go through the cookie degradation curve in 2024? How does this world look different than it does today to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious answer is like by the end of 2024, all cookies will be gone, right? The life of the third-party cookie, which was an amazing answer to a problem, is no longer here. Right. And it's time for us to all start planning as an industry what the next sort of phase of this is. And, and I'm a true believer that the first party data answer is the answer, right? Time to enter an ecosystem that's based on authenticated trust with our consumers, that's based on transparency, uh, that's based on the ability for brands to partner together and create new signals through the collaboration of first party data. And so I sort of see in the next 12 to 24 months, a real flywheel created around this ability to collaborate first party data to create new signals. Now, I think as an industry, we need to solve a few problems like standardization of measurement and taxonomy matching and, and a bunch of things like that. But we've solved, we've solved harder problems at an industry before and we'll solve those. Right. And fortunately, uh, we have a couple more podcast episodes coming up with you guys in uh, Q1. So we can talk about all of that stuff in the next episode. So a little right. teaser alert here. So so it's a trilogy like the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, which is where we started. So uh, just a reminder to the audience. Um, please go to the cpgguys.com URL. You can find all of our content. And uh, by the way, if you think your company has some thought leadership to contribute to the ongoing community conversation, drop us a line at contact at cpgguys.com. And maybe you can join us on the podcast and talk about your favorite genre of fiction. Please don't forget to drop us a rating at cpgguys.com on the navigation bar. And thank you, as always, to what will probably be by airtime, our close to 28,000 followers in the U.S., as well as our 10,000 followers for the FMCG guys over in Europe uh, that make this podcast and being part of this community so much fun for all of us involved. So, hey, Kevin, listen, man, thanks a lot for your time today. It was a really interesting and useful conversation, I think, for our audience. So, Yeah, thank you, Brian, and thank you for everyone listening. Cool. And I'm just going to do a, a quick recap here because I think there are four or five really important points that came out of this, which are the idea that Although the notion of personalized marketing is quite, quote unquote, new-ish, um, a lot of the muscle memory for doing this stuff lives in parts of the marketing ecosystem and has lived there for decades in some cases um, in terms of what's happening here. So some of these capabilities aren't always that new. I think we explored a really useful difference between identity and connectivity. And I think the idea that 
for a company to have their own identity house in order before coming to the connectivity party is such a critical piece of this. And, you know, LiveRamp obviously willing to help you build and develop your own identity solution, as well as once you've done that, leveraging Ramp ID to sort of come to the party and connect to the world in some different ways. We talked a lot about that idea of second party data, um, which is your first party data married to somebody else's. And then obviously, with the rise of clean rooms within a individual ecosystem, Amazon Marketing Cloud, Google Meta, et cetera, and the creation of second party data, but then also talked about LiveRamp's acquisition of Habu. One of the visions beyond that is to have sort of a clean room of clean rooms, if you will, to be able to navigate successfully and intermingle those ecosystems from a planning and evaluation and measurement point of view in new ways that today I think are really hard for brands that are trying to leverage the personalized world to be able to do. You know, I really love the conversation that we had around measurement um, and around that difference between granularity and meaning and really being able and knowing about the art and the science of measure. And then I think this whole question around usefulness of signal is going to be a huge question going forward as we, uh, you know, as we look at the end of the cookie era finally being upon us. So, hey, listen, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, for all of the listeners, uh, have a great day, everybody. Take care. Thank you, Brian. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.